If you ever find yourself driving down the interstate highway in Amarillo, Texas, you'll see something strange. Next to a big yellow building on the side of the road, you'll see a giant 10-foot-high statue of a bull. Alongside this freakishly large bull is a sign. It states in big capital letters, Free 72-ounce steak. For many Texans, this is an offer they can't refuse. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing, and optimizing e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favorite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. If you're lucky enough to find a parking spot outside the big Texan steak ranch, then you can take part in one of the state's oldest and most successful all-you-can-eat challenges. Of course, the steak isn't free for everyone. To get your free 72-ounce steak, you need to consume the huge steak plus a side salad, prawn cocktail, jacket potato, roll and butter all within just one hour. If you think your friend can help you take on the challenge, then you'd be wrong. There are some pretty strong rules that accompany this offer. No third party is allowed to even touch the food. All challengers must sign a waiver accepting responsibility for any health risks. Those who accept the challenge can't eat quietly in a corner. No, they have to sit on a special platform in view of all diners and aren't allowed to leave the table during the meal. And if you're wondering, anyone who vomits is automatically disqualified. Since launching the challenge in the 1960s, the big Texans in Amarillo has seen endless publicity. It is a favourite of TV food and travel programmes with Adam Richmond in Man vs Food taking part. Anthony Bourdain visited the restaurant but declined the challenge instead getting his cameraman to do it instead. The cameraman however didn't manage to finish the meal. In fact the restaurant even has a live streaming service that focuses on the stage where the contestants are attempting the challenge. According to their site thousands of fans regularly tune in to the stream from across the globe. But what's the catch? What happens if you don't finish the meal? Well, you pay $72. 
Since launching, over 70,000 diners have taken on the challenge and only 8,500 have succeeded, pocketing the restaurant a tidy profit. The free 72-ounce steak leverages some fairly significant nudges. That's why it's so successful. Diners are attracted to the meal due to the power of free, a well-known nudge made famous by Dan Ariely. It suggests that free offers have a much higher salience than other offers. The 72-ounce steak also works as a smart anchor. Most diners, now they won't consider buying or eating the 72-ounce steak, but they are repeatedly exposed to the idea of eating it. It's on the sign outside, it's on the menu, even the waiting staff ask if you'd like to have it. 99% of customers will never order it, but the exposure subtly raises the diner's estimates of how much they can eat and how much they're willing to pay. Suddenly, the $29 surf and turf option in comparison doesn't look too expensive, and why not chuck in a few drinks and some sides? It's still cheaper than the steak. The Big Texan Challenge has been widely successful. For 60 years, the restaurant has run the challenge, welcoming hundreds of diners every day, stopping only two months during the period due to COVID. But many other restaurants have tried this same trick and failed. Across Texas, you'll see offers for all-you-can-eat hot dog challenges, free 50-ounce lobsters, and yet many of these don't draw in the crowds like the big Texan. Why is that? Why can one organisation find success with a nudge while another can't? It raises an interesting question about replicability. If a nudge works somewhere, it doesn't always mean it'll work somewhere else. In fact, my guest today, Michael Hallsworth, MD at the Behaviour Insights team in North America, says in recent years, the field of behaviour science has seen a bit of a replicability crisis. He suggests that many of the nudges we use perhaps aren't as successful as we once thought. So there has been a lot of discussion over the last um, five plus years about this idea of a replicability crisis. This this goes into the idea of, you know, can can we trust uh, some of the results that we've seen in the academic literature, many of which are in social psychology, but it actually covers a lot of different uh, disciplines. And the good news is that there are many efforts to, you know, really try to rigorously test and confirm which findings we can rely on and which we can't. And we should, for my position as a practitioner, stop using. I we take it this really, this really seriously as an issue because, from my perspective, I really care about what has an impact in the real world. I don't care about preserving theories for the sake of for their own sake. If it turns out that a certain idea or concept doesn't have the impact we thought, then I think we should really acknowledge that and move on and try to develop new, better approaches. In his book, Michael talks about the marshmallow experiment as an example of the replicability crisis. See, the marshmallow experiment was a study originally conducted in 1972 at Stanford University. In the study, a child was offered a choice. Eat one marshmallow now or wait 15 minutes for two marshmallows. The researcher would present one marshmallow for the kid, leave it on the table and tell the child he'd be back with a second treat in 15 minutes, but only if the child resisted the urge to eat the first marshmallow. For most kids, being left alone with a sweet treat isn't easy. Many can't help but grab it as soon as the researcher leaves. But some 
had more self-control and were able to resist, holding off eating that marshmallow and waiting for the researcher to return. Now, the researchers found something interesting. They followed the kids for years after the study and reported that the children who resisted the urge to eat the marshmallow tended to have better life outcomes as measured by CAT scores, uh, educational attainment, and even a better body mass index. That is pretty interesting, right? The only problem is other researchers have tried to replicate this study and haven't found the same result. One follow-up study had a much more diverse population and a 10 times larger sample size, and they showed no correlation between the success in the marshmallow test and success in later life. In fact, the only correlating factor they found was economic background. Turns out, if you come from a poorer background where food is scarce, you're more likely to grab the marshmallow as soon as you get the chance. This is just one example of a larger issue. Studies in isolation can look effective, but many reportedly can't be replicated. The Behaviour Insights team, where Michael is managing director, obviously took great interest in this replicability crisis. Their work is based on many of these studies, and they needed to be sure the studies could be relied on. With that in mind, the Behavioural Insights team, known as BIT for short, take a very pragmatic view of their work. Their approach involves regularly sharing their studies, reviewing their success, and admitting times where they've struggled with replication. Here's Michael talking through their approach. And in fact, this this approach is kind of built into the way that BIT was set up because, as I mentioned, when we were set up, I was concerned about do, do these ideas translate to the real world? So we've been trying to test many concepts in practice throughout our existence. And we've run hundreds of randomized trials now. And in fact, we've we've tried to contribute to to this idea of of finding the most reliable findings ourselves. So about eight years ago, a study came out that um, suggested that if you sign your name before making a declaration of some kind, uh, then you were likely to be more honest when making that declaration. And the, the field study was based around declaring mileage for car insurance. Now, recently a study came out co-authored by the original authors of the study, which said that, you know, we we can't really replicate this finding. And in many other settings, this doesn't really appear to be the case, that signing before making declaration increases honesty. And if you look at the paper, the the main things that, the main interventions that the, the authors of the new paper cite were actually done by BITS, running in the real-world trials and actually not finding the results we expected. Michael's team are quick to point out when the science doesn't seem to work in practice, whether it's marshmallows and SAT scores or signatures and honesty. So the question is, can we rely on nudges? Should we use them if some are proven to fail? It's a tough question, but one that Michael was keen to solve. So last year, when Berkeley University came to his team asking to do a cross-examination of all of their work to check for effectiveness, he quickly accepted. Here's him talking through his thoughts on the crisis and that cross-examination from the researchers at Berkeley. So I think the replication crisis is really important and we need to keep thinking about taking it really seriously and updating you know, what we're saying to people in terms of our comfort about, confidence about the evidence. But it also it's worth saying that we are getting ourselves quite a lot of feedback through running these trials about what appears to be working. And so last year we were approached by um, 
University of California, Berkeley, who are saying, you know, you've run quite a few trials now in, in North America. Are you interested in what the kind of overall effect is of, of the trials? And they also approach the Office of Evaluation Sciences in the US federal government, which has a very similar kind of remit to you know, take behavioral science and run on these trials, see what works. And of course, this was um, a bit scary because uh, we kind of had a sense that probably we seem to be having an impact if you look at individual studies, but maybe that's just our, our wish to see <laughs> that that's true and our, our kind of confirmation bias. Uh, so we agreed to have the academics conduct an independent analysis of the results from the trials. And, you know, it turned out that there was a positive, significant impact of, of the interventions, around 8% improvement on the kind of baseline outcomes. Uh, and this was looking at, you know, 165 trials, testing 350 interventions and reaching more than uh, 24 million people, I think it was. So, you know, you're dealing with big sample sizes. And in fact, the academics concluded that, you know, there was very good statistical power in these studies. They were well set up, which means we can be pretty confident in the conclusions. And indeed, you should also put that that kind of increase in context. So the cost of the interventions was was really quite low. I think it's worth saying one final thing about this, which is that in the period that we're talking about, we were concentrating on running many of these low-cost interventions, as was the Office of Valuation Sciences. And so what you're looking at there with that result is a lot of studies which, you know, some of them were communication-based, were message-based studies, or you know, relatively light-touch changes to processes. We didn't change any defaults, for example. And we know that defaults can have bigger impacts. So um, that kind of estimate of effect is probably for the uh, kind of a light touch intervention. But what I feel is reassuring about this is that we, I think I seem to be converging on a more realistic sense of the impact we can have. It's a real impact, but you know, we're talking about improvements in the realm of like 5%, which I think is meaningful and valuable, and particularly when you get, you consider the low cost of the interventions. It's worth reiterating the stats behind that paper. The team set up 165 new trials to test 349 different nudges. These had reached over 24 million people involving all levels of government and covered many policy areas such as health, education, tax compliance and the uptake of benefits. The analysis showed a clear and robust positive effect from these interventions. On average, the projects produced an improvement of 8.1%. Now, there is a good reason to be confident in this result. First, the authors had access to both the published and unpublished studies, meaning the results weren't affected by publication bias, where only studies with positive results get published. Second, the trials covered a number of different areas across a wide and diverse range of people. And interestingly, most of these nudges, according to Michael, were cheap to implement. They involved modifying existing practices such as wording a letter differently or redesigning a form. In fact, the study found that the interventions with a lower cost didn't also have a lower effect on outcomes. Ultimately, low-cost nudges appear to have a big effect. An 8% improvement for changes that could be implemented almost for free is more than just impressive, it's outstanding. And yet we've got to be mindful that not everything will work. Not every nudge can be replicated and not every nudge talked about on this show will make a difference for you. 
As always, the advice is the same. Test it for yourself, try it out, compare it to a control and see if it works for your project. Michael, in his book, Behavioral Insights, states that nudges aren't really that new. Francis Bacon's 1920 work, Novum Organ, gives a great account of what we now know as confirmation bias. Bacon states, once a human intellect has adopted an opinion, it draws everything else in to confirm and support that opinion. Nudges have been around for a while and they aren't going anywhere anytime soon, but we need to be mindful when using them. Just because the big Texan got success from utilising the power of free and a brilliant anchor with their 72-ounce steak, it doesn't mean that it will work for your fine dining restaurant in Paris. And yet, as Michael said, nudges on the whole are always worth trying because on average they result in an 8.1% improvement. If you're interested in learning more about Michael's work and hearing his insightful take on how to apply behaviour science, then I'd recommend picking up a copy of his book, Behavioural Insight. It is a must-read if you're interested in learning how behaviour science has impacted citizens across the world. The link to the book is in the show notes below. Also in the show notes is a link to the mailing list. If you sign up to that, I will send you an email every time a new Nudge episode goes live. So head there if you want to keep up to date. And if you want to stay up to speed with what's happening on the show in general, what guests we have lined up and our plans for the future, then you can follow me on Twitter at P underscore Agnew and follow the podcast at Nudge Podcast. Okay, that is all for now. You'll hear the next Nudge in two weeks. Thank you again for listening. Listening.